You're listening to Plans We Make. I'm Ian Chang, drummer for Sunlux, and this is our third installment out of three episodes discussing the theme of voice with some of our favorite artists and collaborators. Today, I'll be talking with Darian Donovan Thomas, who is an excellent composer and violinist and multi-instrumentalist. Darian and I have worked together in a few different settings. We're both part of Moses Sumney's live band, as well as Kazumakino's live band. But today we're really going to focus on his work as a composer because he really just has such a strong identity and sound. And I really wanted to pick his brain about his process and his journey in finding his identity and his voice compositionally. What up? Oh my God, <laughs> Ian, hi. <laughs> hey, so um, we have Darren Thomas with us. Uh, he's a great friend of mine and someone that I was spending a lot of time with right up until the pandemic hit. And then I have not spent any time with him since then. But hopefully soon. It's good to, it's good to have, you, have you here with us today. We're talking about artistic voice. Um, so yeah, thank you for taking the time and making the time and being here. Um, of course thanks for having me this is gonna be cool (laughs) absolutely yeah so let's just start by talking a little bit like about how we met and stuff we've done and we've actually done a a lot (laughs) relatively short amount of time um, in different scenarios so darren and i met as part of a mass mocha residency Mm -hmm. that was i don't remember when that was but it was um like january of 2019 2019 right right. or was that yeah yeah that's right i think so yeah Yeah. i know it was called aeon ritual yeah um and it was amazing and we were basically both thrown into a big group of different composers artists performers and we were working on each other's um works and kind of like putting a a very unique like kind of concert together that we have since not done again but (laughs) i hope we get to do again i think we all hope so it was really cool. Yeah. It was also really terrifying, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was intense. It was intense. It was a lot of music to learn. And then also uh, a lot of all of us had to like figure out how to make what we had brought to the table work for the ensemble as well. Uh, yeah, but it exactly. Was, it was really cool. Because it was uh, William Bertel who asked me to join in on that. And he sent me the list of people and I started researching everyone. I had only just moved to New York at that time. And I was terrified because I was like, oh, they're all art adults uh, trademarked and like pretty famous and doing their things and like being revolutionary in their fields. And I'm a child uh, <laughs> and I had to like start and end the concert. So it was really intimidating. Um, That's right. Glad. You started and ended the concert. Yeah, I had to make two things. Well, <laughs> it was, it was, I thought it was awesome. And I would say that uh, we're all art children in our hearts um, yeah. in some ways uh, <laughs> it's true and sure. on the flip side i would also say that you are an art adult uh, so <laughs> I, I feel more like it now for sure <laughs> yeah i feel like i feel like you've you've done so much since you moved to new york it's been like a pretty explosive time in your in your yeah, life uh, for sure artistically. Um, yeah and among the many things you've done uh, since then, we worked together with uh, Kazu Makino. Yeah. As part of her live band mm-hmm. um, and did a couple tours. And that was super fun. Darren had to figure out a way to fill the role of like a whole orchestra <laughs> um, yeah. in, in his own way. And uh, that was wonderful. Yeah. I also and, got to be uh, like a big whale sometimes with the bass yes. octaver, which yes. was one of my favorite feelings. I. Mm. I want to get back to that feeling of like playing my instrument, not being able to hear myself, but being able to feel all the sub bass in the building move, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the anti-violin yeah. violin sound, you know, um, you're, Me, you're exactly. used to acoustically operating in such like a high frequency mm-hmm. world that like to, to activate that must've been pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then since then we've spent a lot of time also, uh, working on and performing with um moses sumney for his his live show mm-hmm. uh, off of his double album gray which we got to play out a few times and then it got kind of cut short but yeah. uh, we're gonna be continuing some of that in october uh, with yeah some festival plays and stuff so 
excited to get back to that. Yeah, I know that I still haven't played music with another human being <laughs> since last March. Whoa, really? But yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been oh my God. in this room mostly. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> well, but are you vaccinated already? Did you do that? Is I am vaccinated. Mean? Yeah, so it's, yeah, okay. everything's cool. I just like, yeah, it's going to start happening though. So I'm, yeah. I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, back yeah. to, I guess, the topic of artistic voice and I guess, uh, you know, what do we mean by that? I guess I'll just say that it's, it's how does like one find their artistic signature or like, you know, fingerprint or whatever you want to call it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, to me, Darian, you're someone who has this in spades. And like, when I hear a piece that you, you wrote or you playing violin or anything like that, it's, it's very recognizable and it comes from, a place that uh, feels very individual. Um, and uh, so I guess I'll start by just asking you a very general question about uh, just to tell us about your path as an artist and how you've sort of developed your voice over the years, you know? Well, I it's, it's definitely a path that I hated when I was in college, but now that I'm in the real world, I'm very grateful for. So my mother tongue was pop music, right? My parents had a small, um, music label. My dad was a producer, had an in-home studio, and my mom would handle all the business side. And I remember as a family, we would have phases with different albums like Janet Jackson albums, for sure. Uh, Mana, Juanes, The Gorillas, Linkin Park. We would just listen to all these things together. Uh, when reggaeton happened, Shonda Paul, I guess, like when he became popular, my dad was just like critical analysis of Shonda Paul all the time in the car, <laughs> which was hilarious. But really, uh, important and i didn't realize that until later after doing like music history classes in school right so i was involved in that i was around that and then in sixth grade i decided i didn't want to take pe so i should take a fine arts elective in school which was a weird loophole we had and the exact moment i was making a choice i was watching the red violin with my mom and i was like that could be funny let's like try that and so i picked violin really serendipitously uh, <laughs> and it like super worked out which I'm happy about. Um, so don't do PE, kids. Um, but I started really falling into the culture and the world of classical music in a, you know, in a way that was full of wonder, but also naivete, um, mm -hmm. which meant that later on in high school when I was like, I need to be serious about this stuff. And then early in college when I was like, this is my career, um, I would dismiss a lot of pop music things in a way or like because mm -hmm. I was always listening to pop music, but I would dismiss it as serious, I guess. And there was a time where I was like top 40 is blah, 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 and all these like heinous things that no one really should think because it's just absurd. And it took getting to my final year and coming into contact with the local music scene in San Antonio, Texas, for me to mm -hmm. really decondition that and mm -hmm. understand like, oh, OK, so I have this classical training that I've done a lot of work to get that I think I'm pretty decent at and therefore don't want to throw away. But I also have all this like innate from my youth understanding of pop music and stuff and like these musical structures and timbres that people connect with more readily. And I need to harness that a lot more and integrate the two. Like the two shouldn't be at odds with each other. Otherwise, I'm not going to yeah. be a complete. Well, I won't be an accurate representation of myself in composition mm -hmm. or in my playing, you know, because just playing Bach with a mindset of like, I'm in the 1600s or the 1500s or whatever is like, doesn't work for me. Um, but playing it with a mindset of, I can totally play Bach post, I don't know, Ravel and post Kesha. And that makes sense to me. <laughs> like that yeah. feels like a way better way to portray this composer and more accurate way to do it in our time. So I joined eight bands in Texas, which was very exhausting, but helpful. Um, they were all different genres. And also was in a flamenco artist collective and would do video work slash music work for them, playing and composing. Got decent enough at improvising. I don't feel like I really got good at it until like, I'm still not really good at it. I'm still working on it, but like started confronting it. <laughs> That's very <laughs> kind. Thank you. <laughs> but I started confronting all these things, right? And like my composition teacher um, in college was like, just know that when you graduate, you're going to take about a year to get school out of your hands which was honestly mm. superb advice. Uh, That's great advice. So I started working on it and was like, I need to 
get school out of my hands and also kind of out of my mouth and out of my practice and figure out how do I talk to musicians that aren't speaking the same language that I am, um, knowing that we're all still communicating things and that these people I'm dealing with who like don't do notation or don't know counterpoint or whatever, they still know all these principles and are like really powerful and can do these things excellently. Um, so it should, the responsibility should come to me of like, well, since I have the privilege of knowing this language, I should also understand how to communicate these same ideas in other ways. Mm -hmm. So all of that led to me deciding after two years, like I gave myself a short deadline after I graduated undergrad. And I was like, in two years, you're either going to move to a city, move to Europe or go to grad school. Um, and I decided to move to New York and do functionally the same thing that I was doing in Texas. Uh, mm -hmm. So I joined six bands and like uh, started working around and getting around the new music community, connecting with all the composers that I loved and respected. And yeah, I mean, through a lot more nuance that kind of led us to this point. And just also always being able to say yes to things and recognize like, is this a musician who understands where I'm coming from? Or mm -hmm. is this a musician who I feel like would help me understand where I'm coming from? Um, oh, which definitely cool. was the vibe, so, like when I met all y'all <laughs> in that residency. I think it's, I think it's, it goes both ways. I feel like you and I have some similarities in sort of our willingness to say yes to all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> and um, hearing about like you joining eight bands out of college that were vastly different stylistically um, and you know, everything from flamenco. And I know you're also like playing like with like a country band and stuff that like yeah. on, on his face probably like, doesn't have very much to do with like what you do or see yourself as an artist now in some ways. But through that process, did you feel like it was like a gradual sort of thing where you were, you know, out of school and you were experiencing all these different things and kind of um, integrating yourself in all these different musical perspectives? Um mm -hmm. Do you feel like it was like a gradual process in which you were sort of like uh, taking those experiences and kind of, I don't know, like, do you feel like it was something that just like crystallized all of a sudden at some point or like, or maybe it's even hard for you to know, uh, but like, or do you think it was like a gradual process where like eventually, you're like, oh, like this is Darian. Um, I think it was gradual. Because I've tried Darian in this and tried Darian in this and like, this is like, you know what I mean? Like Exactly. Well, yeah. no, yeah, I think it's that um, through being in all these different spaces and being in country music, being in punk music, being in like the indie orchestral music thing that happened in Texas real hard around 2011, mm. being in like all these different types of um, areas, I was able to understand like, oh, this is the expectation of a violinist in this setting. This is the expectation, therefore, of like a composer performer in this setting. And here are the ways that I meet that expectation. Here are the ways that I can like do those things. And here are the ways that I don't want to do those things and want to like respond against, which super informed whenever I would go back and have my own compositional practice, which was always happening. I was always just writing for people, whether I was commissioned or not, I was always just writing um, right, and producing yeah. my own songs and doing my own thing. And I was able to experiment with those ideas in my pieces and crystallize them, especially once I started making like solo music that I would perform myself that involved tracks and production and stuff. It was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, this is starting to make sense. I understand like the feel of an audience when they're just listening to a country beat, you know, which is like a really particular feeling um, <laughs> to experience. And especially one that was not hyper present in my youth. Um, mm -hmm. So to feel that was interesting and to compare it with like, I don't know, the way people move during a Latin post-punk set and then to compare mm. that with how flamenco performers experience beat and the compas and stuff like mm. it. This is probably my Virgo coming out, but I always feel like through an over um, inundation of info, I can get to the core essence of something um because it's like oh well this has all these terms and all these things but the point is this and this has all these terms and all these things but the point is this and these two mm. points are actually the same thing and they overlap again um mm. and then i understand how to interact with that better so i, f I feel mm. like it was a gradual thing but definitely the first time i was able to crystallize it and like produce it was with my piece fluid um mm -hmm. which is this violin suite um in like three movements for violin and electronics it, I wrote it right before I moved to New York 
and I knew that I needed a piece because I was having all these ideas, right? I was like, oh, you know, being post-genre, being interdisciplinary, whatever. But I didn't have anything that proved that I knew what that meant or that I could do it. <laughs> so I made this piece. I was asked to make a piece in a week and made this 30-minute work. It's not but a lot it of was, time. Holy crap. I know. <laughs> there was no Not money. the 30 minutes, I, the So week. the story, <laughs> the, the story is that... Um, he, uh, Mikey Vibe slash the band leader of Deer Vibes in San Antonio was the owner of this venue, Ventura. Um, this used to be the 1011, which used to be the Warhol, which is like just this iconic dive bar on the river. Really cool thing. While he was owning it, he was trying to make it a little nicer in a way. Um, so the San Antonio River Authority, because we care a lot about our river, wanted to have a party there. And Mikey asked me, he was like, hey, this thing is happening. Um, we want to make it nice. Do you think you could like, would you be okay making music for it and performing? So he asked from a very indie place, you know, like basically, can you do a set, um, but just of new stuff. And at the time, I wasn't very improvisational. So I was like, yeah, I could write a piece. How much music are you thinking? He's like, 30 minutes. I was like, okay, when? He's like, next week. I was like, oh, you and just spitballing you you don't have a budget do you he's like no 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 i'm like okay cool um but i knew i was about to move and i knew that i needed that business card of a piece almost that's like Mm. who business card slash personal essay of a piece that's like who am i what am i thinking about where are my ideas Mm. and so i just locked myself in my room and did it got it out and (laughs) i'm glad i did because like i don't know that that piece opened a lot of doors for me and the workflow there was beautiful i remember like i had my laptop in my lap which had sibelius on it my notation software i had my desktop on my desk uh which had logic open i had my midi controller next to me and i was holding my violin and just equal parts moving between all these different things and it was like oh yeah this is an integration of all these things finally and it felt super right yeah and so that was the first time that it really like came together i guess Mm. yeah oh that's beautiful to yeah, I, th- I think you've, you've told me that story before in some way, shape or form, but it's yeah. it's cool to hear it uh, again. And and yeah, wow, like 30 minutes in a week. Did you That's like, <laughs> that must have been kind of scary, right? Because like going into it, you're probably just like, I can do this. <laughs> and also, and at the same time, you're like figuring out like, you know, like you said, it's your personal essay. You're trying to kind of like speak from your artistic voice potentially mm-hmm. like in a crystallized way for like the first time mm-hmm. and that was like your intention um so that's daunting i mean yeah. a lot of people like take a lot of time to to do that and maybe it was a good thing you were forced to do it super quickly <laughs> i think so that's kind of how i looked yeah. at it i was just like yeah. well there's no time for me to get in my own way which is probably ideal mm-hmm. anytime i get mm-hmm. these like because this happens a lot to me uh where <laughs> we're getting just, in your own way or no, 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 getting... No, no, no. getting asked to make like really large um things very fast like uh this year alone i've made two 30 minute films within a week um mm-hmm. and like the same with the pieces where it's like oh there was a 30 minute piece that got made in like two weeks by accident but i don't know all through college i at the beginning i like wanted to be a video game uh composer Mm. and a film score which makes a lot of sense i think with my sound world now mm-hmm. and s- there are these horror stories right of like oh my god you're gonna have to be able to score like two and a half hours of music in a week so i kind of just kept that standard when i was in college i was like i have to write a lot i have to write a lot i have to write a lot and be able to just kick it out and i it's useful because i can do these things and usually i'm proud of what i end up making um mm. and i just soothe myself by saying you just don't have time to get in your own way so it's okay It'll be fine. You just have to like get it out. No time to overthink it. And then it will be done. So aside from like actively either being put in positions or telling yourself to not get in your own way, like, Mm -hmm. and I'm asking this because I feel like anyone who's sort of on a creative or artistic path has some relationship with getting in their own way, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, like what is your relationship like with that? I don't know. Maybe that's, too vague of a question but i don't know if if that i don't think so i mean (laughs) i think the it's harder to tell in composition so it 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 it, it like reveals itself in two ways right in composition um if i get in my own way that just means that i'm trying to force something that doesn't work um but if i get to that point i usually have enough time to undo it 
but unfortunately for me uh when you get to that point you have to just kind of like punch through it and like keep adjusting the thing until you decide like i'm gonna just delete it now and then you delete it and then you go back to maybe what you were gonna do in the first place and you're like yeah that's what that should have been the only place where getting in my own way is really nefarious and mm. sucks is when i'm mm. performing and when i'm like trying to improvise uh. or something because it's like it's um ephemeral right it's like that yeah. note is here and then it's gone and those are the times where it's like oh i was in my way and sometimes it, the worst is when you feel it as it's happening and you're like <laughs> i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> and, um, <laughs> i have to think about what i'm doing i have to impress these people like janelle Monet is right there or whatever and it's just like really intense and i i don't know how to overcome that well that's not true i mean i just have to like leave <laughs> mm. my head in a way and just trust that my hands will do what they've been doing for so many years at this point and mm. there's like that solace in having been on your instrument for how long have i been playing violin i think only like 12 14 years something like that i don't know mm. but like there's a solace there right and like i know this instrument i know what to do i do functionally like know where every single note is <laughs> and it is like an extension of my neck at this point so I can just go places if I just let my body do it instead of mm. uh forcing my body to do it you know mm. yeah that's the only place where it really has been a problem it's like in performance you get in your own head and it's not mm. fun well on the flip side would you say that there's any version of Maybe it's not getting in your own way necessarily, but like just insecurity or like like imposter syndrome or stuff like that. Basically, like I know you're hard on yourself. Yeah. Um, so, like, <laughs> would you say that there's any aspect of these types of things that you've like? Obviously, there's like those things are negative in on mm -hmm. its face, right? But mm -hmm. like, um. Do you feel like you've ever had the experience of kind of turning those things on their head in a way that makes it like healthy? If that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, I, so I've recently with my songwriting taken a turn to writing these like failure songs. <laughs> mm. uh, Cause ultimately the harness on oneself or the like um, imposter syndrome is rooted for me in a fear of failure. That's like the most terrifying thing is what, and I don't even, it's a funny fear. Cause I don't even know what that fear looks like whenever I'm really serious with myself. It's like, what does it mean for me to fail at this point? And I genuinely have no idea. Like there, I could do anything. If something doesn't work, I can do so many other things. So I, it's completely irrational. So therefore sometimes for me, it's really helpful to just like pursue the thought experiment and be like, okay, let's jump 50 years in the future. Who are you if you failed? And what does that actually look like? What does that mean? Um, and it ends up producing really beautiful art because it's such a like weirdly abstract, non-real, but succinctly vague feeling um, that I feel like people can kind of relate to in a way. And if nothing else that I feel like I can speak on with a certain kind of convention because it's something from deep inside of me that I'm just pulling out, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think with any other weakness that I've had, my modus operandi has always been like well we're gonna lean into that and <laughs> just really do that then because i think the mistakes and the weaknesses are part of what makes a person themselves especially artistically totally. it's like you're interacting with your limits you know mm -hmm. to uh, pivot a little bit here i just wanted to um say that i was checking out your artist statement on your website um and you outlined two pretty specific goals with your work um, one is to create a space for escape and the other is to create like a political space or a dialogue or some kind of um, almost like a classroom like as I think is the word that you use social um, studies classroom yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, I you know I find that uh, really inspiring um, and yeah I'm just curious to hear you talk a bit about like how you develop these goals like when you made that decision and how that like kind of manifests itself in your creative process. Um, totally. because you know, there's, there's intention, which is, I think what these goals, uh, bring to your creative process. And then there's like how to actually like translate that intention into like mm -hmm. work, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Well, um, I think the artists that I've always admired were ones that could, 
be in both spaces, like give you just party music, but also say something um, directly related to real world events and not feel cheesy about it, feel mm-hmm. sincere. Um, and so I've known for a while that I wanted to have that power. Um, I mean, like one of the early albums um, that my family had a phase with was Midnight Marauders, Tribe Called Quest. And I feel like that's a really good example because it's like there's party music in here and there's really political music in here. Like all hip hop, early hip hop was like super political equal parts right it's like this music's coming from disco also this music is like really protest music in a strong way um and so i always wanted to keep that going but i felt like the way to do that is to establish early on um how you were going to operate and how people should receive you so the first time i felt like i was becoming an actual capital C classical music composer art adult person (laughs) was like when I got into the um, soap percussion summer institute and part of the thing for that is you have to write I got in as a composer because I'm not because I'm a violinist Um, so not really a percussionist like that Um, (laughs) unless we're doing like (laughs) maybe drum machines in production but (laughs) otherwise like I'm not going to be doing any of those like John Cage pieces but I got in as a composer, and so I got to write two pieces. And the two pieces that I made, um, there's like one piece that you write for the other fellows, the other performers in the program, and one piece that you make for soap percussion to read. Um, and that's when I made Kid Gunner Brother, the hand game that I have, which is based on the story of my younger brother at the time was 11. And my family was at a pizza hut which is a very important detail. And he just was talking about guns and how he loved them. And we're all like very liberal, non-gun people. So you're like, hey, what's up with that? Why? And he said that he needed guns to protect us from ISIS. And then we just had a really long talk um, about how that was not valid. Um, And I asked just because I was like, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to be thorough. Um, Do you know about the KKK Um, and he didn't and the thing is that like my dad is black my mom's from Mexico City we were living in Texas in a suburb and like I got called the n-word at that high school that I went to which is like catty corner to our house so like it's like it's definitely something that we've talked about in the house um, but the public schooling there leans right Um, (laughs) yeah and unfortunately it's like yeah, yeah, it's well, yeah. <laughs> we out here, we know. Um, and you're in Texas now, so yeah. you like super know. But like, yes. Just, so I just felt like this warrants discussion <laughs> needs to be put down in some format. And I felt like a hand game was like precisely as absurd as the conversation was, um, and it was well received. And then the piece that I wrote for so percussion was Stephen Clark which is a piece that's based on the number 20. It starts with 20 hits at 60 BPM. So you can just hear how many times Stephen Clock was uh, shot Um, and understand that there's no reason for a debate on like if this was a good or a bad thing. Because there were a lot of articles debating like, oh my God, he should have been or he shouldn't have been. It's like, no one should be shot 20 times. Like that's pretty, you know, I feel like we can all agree that's absurd, but for some reason through like verbiage, we forgot that that's absurd. So I was like, here, just listen to the number and then let's go with that. And I think it was really like after the first rehearsal of that piece that I was like, Oh, I need to not only do this. Um, but I need to incorporate this into my practice because when they first read through it, I, I definitely wrote it um as an experiment i mean i hadn't written unpitched material before uh the piece is just for two toms to symbolize the two guns and two people to a tom and they're saying a lot of the text surrounding the event because we have the body cam footage from the cops so mm-hmm. quoting that mm-hmm. quoting the mayor's response quoting uh Stephen's grandmother quoting all these things right And they committed to it in a way that I was not expecting um, to where like after the first read through was done, everyone in the room was silent. And I think I just said, I'm sorry, (laughs) because I didn't know I didn't know what else to because it was just it was a lot. And I could tell that they were kind of shaken because they were doing it. And I felt 
equal parts bad, but equal parts responsible. Um, like this is a good thing that'll be in the world and this needs to happen. Mm -hmm. But also I value musicians so much that I don't want to just inflict this type of emotional state upon people. Um, I need to also give places of rest. And that felt like my solution for like everything going forward. Because there's also the thing of like whenever an event happens, right? Like with George Floyd, I did respond to it musically, but even if I didn't respond to it musically, that would have been read in the context of like George Floyd. Anything that happens in the world is inescapable, I think. Like, unless you really position yourself as I'm a composer who only writes abstract things, in which case that's also a choice not to respond to the world. And that is a position that you're taking, you know, and that's not what I want to do. I want to respond to the world as it's happening. And I also want to comfort people in the world as it's happening for sure. And that got extra, extra crystallized during the pandemic when all these uh. institutions, all the schools, there was a period in April. Um, I was in Virginia because my roommate and I needed to escape New York because of all the ambulances, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just standing there listening to the wind and thinking, who exactly am I writing for right now? Because um, all my writing had gotten like into these weird, complicated things. And I was doing some stuff that I was like, yeah, this is fine. But I don't, I don't know. I was kind of getting away from myself and experimenting a lot, which is good. But I was just like, what's the end goal of this? And I realized I was writing for teachers that I just don't have anymore. And like for the approval of professors that... I didn't need <laughs> and seeing like schools shut down foundations close people just losing money and all the rich people not being able to support things anymore I was like that's not sustainable that's not what we should do and I there's this like wealth of people that are just in need of something comforting at this moment and I want to be a person that people think of whenever they're like, I need something that can calm me down or soothe me or like give me space to process things right now. As much as I want to be a person that people can think of whenever they're like, I just had this dumb argument with my family who is of this certain opinion and I wish I just had something that cleanly represented my point of view. And I think I have those pieces too. So it just felt responsible and also ideal. Like these are both things I want to talk about. So I should. Yeah, they, it's it's really amazing to hear you talk about it because it's it becomes really clear that it's really two sides of the yeah. same coin. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I've heard you mention a few times now, like where you know you've approached certain things from a place of experimentation. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like sometimes they beget something that feels successful to you. And sometimes you go down a road where you're like, what yeah. is this? Or like, who am I? Like, how important is um, experimentation to sort of your process? But also maybe now that I'd, I'd say you've established maybe like to yourself, like who you are, uh, how important is experimentation to like evolution? And on the flip side of that, and sorry, there's too many questions at once, like how important is actually repeating some of some ideas that you, or techniques, yeah. you know? Cause I think we're told maybe too often that like repeating yourself is a bad thing. But anyway, I'll, I'll let you talk <laughs> about it because I feel like, yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I think that like, I value experimentation and I value when people come to me usually the experimentation happens on the composition side, right? And like, I'll experiment mm -hmm. with things on my own um, sometimes. And also like some things just end up in the drawer and nothing has to, not everything has to go out, you know? <laughs> some pieces are just totally. for me and some things aren't even documented. It's mm -hmm. like, this is just, I'm going to sit at the piano mm -hmm. and try this thing out and see if it works, if it doesn't work and let it sit in my head and then crystallize later and come out in a different way. But there are some times where people commission me with like a specific experiment in mind. Like I recently was able to make mm. this piece also for so percussion, but it was a joint commission with so percussion, percussion quartet and bergamot quartet, the string quartet. And it was for an open instrumentation piece. So 
that was wild because I, I hadn't done it before. And um, I feel like I learned so much about how I actually approach orchestration and understood like, oh, I'm writing plays every time I'm writing a piece because <laughs> that's what I did. I ended up abstracting everything and I was like, okay, well, what's the actual role of everything if you were to just remove the instruments and the registers and stuff? And it's like someone's supposed to be foundational. Someone's supposed to be decorative, ornamental, energetic. Someone's supposed to blah, 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 blah. And then you just have these four characters interacting with each other over time. And that's how that piece was created, which now is super helpful whenever I'm approaching a new piece because it helps personify counterpoint in a way that I just wouldn't have thought to do before. <laughs> um, and mm. I love thinking about counterpoint, always thinking about it, but thinking of it dramaturgically is like really special. Right. So I don't know, that was helpful for me. And then also like using those newly found structures and forms and filling them in with the old figures and shapes that I like playing, I think is really important too. Cause it's like, there, there are these like specific progressions of Mozart that I just love and you'll hear them all the way throughout his output. And the same thing with Bach, there are certain figures that are like, that's a Bach figure and they'll just happen all the way through. And the same with Philip Glass. I, I think that there's a, this part of the question is interesting because it alludes to something I was talking to someone else about recently, which is a uh, capitalizing upon composition. I feel like if you want to make a lot of money in composition, you probably have to like figure out a voice in a very succinct way of like, I do these arpeggios, I do this block structure form thing, and my pieces can last this long or this long. And if you can do that, then you're in a perfect position to like sell your work, which is not a bad thing. I think that's great um, if it's what you want to do. It's just harder to make those big changes over time, I think. But if you come from it the other way of like, I know I have... I almost everything I write on my violin is in like G major, D major-ish, probably like D major flat seven area, but based on G. <laughs> and like this chord <laughs> in particular, like G, D, A, F sharp is calling card thing. All the false harmonics um, mm. and just like the bullshit false notes that I do um, <laughs> of like, my fingers aren't really touching the fingerboard, but they're touching the string, like just uh, yeah. glitter, tossing glitter into the air is very much my thing, right? Mm -hmm. But learning mm -hmm. these new structures and thinking about that as a character instead of as just a gestural thing I'm doing can be really interesting because mm -hmm. it's like, well, what does it sound like if it's juxtaposed with something really solid against it? And it just opens up doors. Mm -hmm. And I think in a weird way, returning to those things that you're so familiar with helps you better clean out the idea that you just discovered, you know? So I think it's like really important to return to those things and have those figures and be like, this is my motif. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like you're, what you're saying really speaks to the fact that like, you know, some, like if you think of like some of these motifs or uh, ideas or techniques or whatever that you speak to you and resonate with you um, and it's part of like your language. If you think of those things as mm -hmm. cellular, like what the body that it makes up can be, so many different things, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, I, and I, yeah, um, and I'm going to ask you a question about like, and this it probably depends on the commission depends on the situation, but like what happens for you when you like sit down and you're like, okay, I'm going to make a piece of music or I'm going to make a piece of video art. Like, and sometimes it's a blank canvas. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have parameters. Sometimes you have, you know, but like, how do you how do yeah. you start like and where does it go from there you know that's always the scariest part at least for me is like when you when it's just like okay the thing doesn't exist yeah. yet at all like like i mean i have kind of vague ideas sometimes um let me see if i actually have my little notebook here so i might be able to show you what i mean um like the answer is it depends i okay here so like this is a piece that um, I wrote for String Orchestra of Brooklyn. Um, they needed <laughs> a 30-minute piece in a short amount of time, <laughs> and they were going to perform it outside last October. And so the good news is, like, cool, String Orchestra, awesome. I know how that works. I'm very good at that. I can do that well. And I knew that the easiest way to accomplish that amount of time is to make something literally cellular, so, like, with box notation and stuff. And I was like, well, okay, what 
and this is a question I ask myself a lot at the beginning of things. I just try to sit in my head and stare at what I want it to sound like <laughs> um, and like how I want to move through time with the thing and how I want it to envelop me, I guess. And often that means I'm going to start by like drawing something and then just figuring out what Whoa. does that drawing actually mean. And for me at this point, I have a pretty solid idea of what this means, right? Like the the straight lines are kind of rules. The lines horizontal are things in the base register that eventually become like chords. And then there's all this glissing. It's a falling like scalar figure that also comes back up, mm. which leads to just staying on individual notes. And so then I have like a chart, right, of what I want to do. And it ends in this like hazy wow. activated texture thing that just suddenly happens and then stops. So that is enough for me to then just start filling it in with the old like shapes and things that I always do, right? The little cells that I have where it's like, yeah, okay, so let's just put it in G because we also have to get it done quickly. And let's like make uh, these chords that I know that I really like. Um, and you're going to start with a lot of space, just pizzicato stuff, and then it'll fill itself out over time and just become this dense, um, solid thing that's all of a sudden moving around you, you know? So I'll either do that or I'll start at an instrument and just play until I find something that won't leave me alone, which is a harder process. I, I kind of have like a, a couple rules with that part. If I find an idea, that's fine, but I'm not going to act upon it unless it stays for like two weeks. <laughs> like if it's a thing that I just can't get away from two weeks later, then it's like, okay, this has to be documented. I have to do it. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. uh, inspiration is yeah. good. And like you should always just have ideas, but not every idea is really worth pursuing. I don't think um, not worth pursuing like that. You know, it's like, yeah, I can just, I don't know. This thing came to me and I had this idea and that's cool. But that doesn't mean I have to write the piece based on it. And sometimes when you try to write that piece, yeah. then it gets um, uninspired or boring, or at least that's my experience with those things. So mm. to counteract that, it's like, okay, I found it. Cool. Maybe it's not a full piece. We'll find out in two weeks. Check back in. If in two weeks it's still happening, then we can start on it. And then I think the other important piece of the puzzle is knowing, and this just comes from like watching a lot of interviews from composers and stuff, but like, knowing that starting at the beginning is probably not what you're doing <laughs> unless you know what the beginning of right. the piece is. Um, and yeah. we've talked about this where like lots of times I'll start a piece and be like, Oh wow, this is cool. But also this is way too intense for a beginning. And then I'll just add a section before and then add a section before and then add a section before and be like, ah, there's the beginning. Okay, cool. And you just keep shaving away until you get to like, where does the thing actually start? You know? Because in your head, you're like, I know the world. I know everything that's happening. But you have to also kind of get the audience there, I think. So those are kind of the ways that I approach it. And just trusting the conceptualization process. Because I think if you combine like conceptualizing and craft too early, it just takes me back to like college in a practice room, like beating myself up because I can't get this idea out. And it's like, well, no, you just haven't thought about it long enough yet. <laughs> you need to really understand what you're about to do before you. I, I don't like I don't like figuring out the weeds while I'm in the weeds. You know, that's so interesting. I feel like um, it's helping me understand. And we've talked about this, but like, I feel like you have a superpower for like creating really long pieces of music uh, <laughs> that feel really natural and and i don't know so it's understanding that you kind of like conceive of things structurally it, it kind of helps me understand like how you're able to do, <laughs> do what you do thank you and um yeah i think it's uh i'm i'm more familiar with the latter i think ex uh way of like where either sitting at an instrument mm -hmm. or sitting with some like recordings or samples or whatever and like starting from the thing and then like building mm -hmm. it out uh that's typically how i've done stuff but um yeah that's that's really uh inspiring to hear about like kind of just seeing the diagram and, and learning about yeah. how you do that i think um have you like had examples where like you've you've approached a piece like this and you kind of set up with this uh with a structure that you're you're thinking like conceptually and then like when you fill in the blanks 
like somehow the road gets twisted along the way and then like by the end you're just like oh wow like how did we get here like is that like something that you find happens and maybe maybe in some ways like that structure in the beginning was like really just like a great launching point to get to something else totally is that something that that, yeah i mean i think it's really important to never be too married to an idea um i know these systems work for me because they're really succinctly vague that's honestly like my whole thing is just like i'm being very precisely (laughs) vague about what i'm going to do and like i don't know what it is but i know exactly what it is uh but also that leaves a lot of room for moving around and being like oh well that's just not what this is anymore so that's not what it is and now we can do this other thing but i think like the good news of approaching it this way or where it helps me anyway is that it's kind of rare that i'm in uncharted waters not in that I'm not exploring stuff, but just in that, like, I think approaching everything so structure-based or, like, architecturally helps me really creep, keep track of gravity in what I'm doing, um, which is kind of, like, one of the most important things for me. It's, like, the gravity of melody, the gravity of pacing. Like, when you're as a composer, you're playing with inevitability, right? So just understanding when do I give that payoff? When do I not Mm. kind of no matter where the piece goes, as long as I keep hold of that type of compass, then I think it ends up working out. Mm. And because of that, I feel like I have enough Mm. freedom to be like, yeah, okay, this can divert from what I thought it was going to be. Um, Cause I still know how to handle myself wherever I'm at, you know? I like the precisely vague thing is so funny because I think it applies to both your creative process and also how you live, (laughs) live and like, kind of like, it's almost like you can see, like you think of your career as like an, yeah. as a work of art or mm-hmm. something. Like when you're talking about how like 50 years from now, yeah. like how, like what would I feel like, like these kinds of questions, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it, it all it makes sense. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I want to talk, just like touch on before we kind of wrap up is uh, because I think it's important and it's uh, at least from my vantage point, something that's important to who mm-hmm. you are and uh, as an artist and as a human being, and also aesthetically in a lot of ways, like speaks to like the way your music sounds is uh, just riff on the importance of anime in your, you know, in your, in your life and like kind of how, uh, how that affects, like how you think about um, everything yeah. art or music or sounds. Or yeah. I mean, anime is like, it's so wonderful because it's so many things, but it's also exactly what it is in return to the thing, right? <laughs> like it's, uh, you can, I don't know, you can be so fantastical and open and wild and massive, but also so potently small in like a malarian sense almost. Um, I think the drama of it, the pacing of it, the way these stories are delivered and like the way new stories or old stories will be taken into the medium and how that's thus affected cartoons like in America and what that means for all the cartoons we're having in this like second golden age of um, Cartoon Network post-adventure time. It's like, yeah, I love watching all these things and seeing how that affects architecture, right? Because it's it's that. It's like, how do you carry these sometimes really long stories? Um, and how do you introduce characters and how do they interact with each other? And what exactly is the music of a grass field? And like... Beyond that, what is the temperature of the grass field, the color temperature, and how are we approaching like depth of fields and all these things, knowing that it's all so considered um, because it is artificial, every single bit of it um, Mm. is really important that someone cared enough to blur out that one thing so that you would focus on this other thing. It's like a really important compositional principle, you know, (laughs) it's a, I don't know, it's all so reinforcing and then I feel like being so into anime when I was younger prepared me for things like Steven Universe, right? Where it's like that episode, mm. uh, what is it? Lion Straight to Video, I think. That's like episode 30 something in season one. Um, but where you finally get the tape from Lion and. Oh, God. That, that episode is. Every single so time. Every single time. I, Not heartbreaking. Yeah, heart wrenching. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And it's just, but yeah. like to. I mean, you know, it's an example also of the thing of like, I'm sure that that was like one of the first ideas that Rebecca Sugar had, you know, is like, how can I create this moment Mm. and how can I make this so powerful for people, like really powerful? It's like, okay, we're going to put it 
way late in the season, <laughs> like past when the season should be over is where we're going to put it. Yeah. And we're going to make sure that yeah. there's already enough complication about it's like, OK, well, then we have to like really identify who is Rose and figure out why does this feel intense? And then we have to get you into a really innocent idea of Steven and just all these different things like lion has to be a huge question mark because <laughs> what what even is happening here um but also how it ties into everything that's going to happen sometimes like two seasons later like bismuth is there in that yeah. scene um yeah yes that's yeah. true it's crazy yes. to rewatch uh steven it's Universe, so well crafted it's sure. a um, yeah, yeah and i think like knowing that and really like wrestling with it. I mean, like always watch cartoons just to watch cartoons. That's great too. But for me, like I really do consider it field research and study because uh, this is how you move people through time. And I think that's the big relationship between like music, movies, video, art in general, any animation, um, architecture too, and theater is like, how do I get a person from point A to point B in time and space? And so learning how other people do this in other mediums is just like so crucial, I think. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you think you, I feel like you think so interdisciplinarily yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that, that yeah. makes sense. And it's actually interesting hearing you talk about that. I can really relate. I think um, with uh, Sunlux just like put out like a three volume album that, and it was the first time where we, before the songs were even written because we kind of in general the way we do things is we like grow things cellularly and then they become structures and then but before like any of the songs or lyrics or like even melodies were done we like sequenced did a rough draft of a sequence of like the three things before and then so so that we had the larger structure to consider as we move forward to finishing all these cells of ideas and it was really something we've never done before because usually you finish the songs okay. and then you're like okay what's right exactly to the album, blah, blah. <laughs> right you know like like how, how does this how, how can we make this feel like a journey but like in this with the three volume thing we were kind of like okay like there's now we can play with like recurring things how can things like yes reappear in a different light yeah. or like kind of like be in the background in one in one way and then be in the foreground in another and it was really eye-opening to it's me. so amazing it's, and i think it's something it's cool to hear that yeah that you like have to consider when you're dealing with these larger pieces right it's like there is an arrival point like for some reason i have to make it worth someone being here for two hours three hours whatever right and i definitely spent a lot of time with opera in college like just consuming all of the opera in our library because um, i and i think i have like two to three of them in me honestly so i'm, I'm just waiting for someone to, like for my commissions to get right before i do me. it um uh, well because that'll take money well if anyone's That's listening gonna, <laughs> if anyone's listening who's in that, in that world <laughs> but it'll be really good especially now that i'm doing all the interdisciplinary yeah. stuff and like set design and whatever like i'll it's gonna be great but someone has to pay me but the point is that like you'll have these pieces that are like uh, Benjamin Britten, uh, Turn of the Screw. Amazing opera. The Turn of the Screw is a story of like um, this uh, nurse, nanny person, I guess, who goes to Bly Manor uh, somewhere in England or whatever and is like watching over these two kids and then finds out that, spoiler alert, like they're haunted by these two older people who used to work at the manor and like blah, 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 blah. There's also, I think it's the haunting of Bly Manor um, on Netflix is the turn oh, of the yeah. screw. It's yeah. that exact story in an opera. Uh, so here's the cool thing. Cause the story definitely starts out as like, Oh my God, everything's so normal. And then it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder until you're at the end. And it's like, what the fuck is happening? Britain chose to represent that in such a cool way by making the opera. It's completely theme and variations. Like the whole structure, every movement that happens is a variation on the first theme, <laughs> which I think is brilliant because wow. it's like, yeah, you're just, you're just the turn of the screw. It's happening, right? It's like, that makes so much sense. And the way that he places, yeah. like the first time that the nanny in a turn of the screw questions why she's coming to this job, she sings a melody of like the dude who's haunting the boy so that when you get there later, there's that, oh, hey, wait, that's that same memory from there. And you know, like, oh, shit, this person's like yeah. trouble. We should not. Yeah. It's so brilliant. I think it's like, 
And then yeah. it's the same thing in Steven Universe. And then it's the same thing in like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's so good. I, yeah, I love all these different mediums a lot. <laughs> and they inform everything. And <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely time for you to, to do the scoring work that you, you dreamed of. Me too. Um, yeah. When you're in so college as well. As well. It's, it's, <laughs> I've, I have no doubt that that will happen. Yeah. Um, and that's something that has been happening to me this past year pretty <laughs> yeah. intensely. And just like, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting mm-hmm. and a huge learning experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think we're coming close to our time. Um, so I'm going to ask a very uh, expected general question okay. about like, and I think it's a, it's actually, I think an interesting question for you, especially because you spend a lot of your energy thinking about the future, but what, uh, the question is just, what would you, what advice would you give, uh, your younger self? Um, yeah. If you could do that. It probably just like to do exactly what you're doing. <laughs> I don't think, I know it feels like, I think at that time I felt this pressure of like, I should be doing something completely different or I'm doing this the wrong way or I'm in the wrong place or I'm in the wrong city, whatever. It's like, just do exactly what you're doing. Just be really committed, lean in the way that you're leaning in. You're right to just like hide in the practice room at like 9 PM until the security guards come around and then like lock the building and then like turn the lights back on and keep practicing until one. That's exactly what you should be doing. Oh my God. Just do it, (laughs) lean into it. I know everyone else is, doing more typical college things (laughs) but you'll have enough time to dance and stuff later like the your (laughs) my expectation of my life was always like I'm gonna work now so that I can play later and that's exactly right like just keep doing that because I'm around people now who uh it's just hard to get things started later in life and even a little later in life like college is such a weirdly unique space for growth and to set yourself on the path for like everything that's about to happen. So I would just say like, trust that process. And also know that like, nothing's really concrete. You can like change things if you need to, but just do things yeah. with conviction. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I love that. And it's, it's interesting. I feel like college there's, there's always this like dissonance or tension between like what you think you should be doing or like, and I don't know, I feel like a lot of those things, at least for me personally, like there are things that I realized didn't matter to me, that don't matter to me the way I maybe thought they mattered to me in college, but it was like maybe important for me to like think that they mattered to me or something like what, like in some way, like, I don't, I don't know, it's an it's a interesting kind of. No, exactly. I mean, it's hard to gauge what's important, especially, I mean, like we're all kids, you know? <laughs> like when do you graduate like you're maybe 21 like we're kids kids totally kids so it's yeah you have to you have to allow yourself to kind of just to just go through it I mean like I I feel like I was really privileged to in a lot of ways but like to know that I wanted to pursue music so early like I decided in ninth grade when did you know um ninth grade I was like I'm gonna be a musician and then 10th grade I was like I'm gonna be a composer in particular (laughs) so I need to start working on that um mm. and knew that like I was gonna have to compensate for starting violin so late which is why I was like okay I'll be a composer uh <laughs> and like knew that um I don't look like the rest of the composers which is fine and I like that uh but I knew that it would just mean that I'd have to be really um good <laughs> really good at what I do so that there's no room for people to critique that or dismiss it which made college a lot easier because I was like no yeah I'm like I'm I'm in Hogwarts I don't know what y'all are doing but like I'm happy here <laughs> I love everything I'm doing <laughs> um <laughs> learning about florid counterpoint come on that's a spell like yeah I'm here here for it um <laughs> which made it easier oh, I love thinking about those like it, it's great right kind of yeah. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah anyway well thank you so much uh for your time and for yeah answering all of my questions <laughs> of course keep on keep on doing your thing and uh, i'm excited to to see where, where things go and hopefully see well yeah. we'll see you soon i'm excited yes yeah. it's gonna be so good we're gonna dance yeah. we're gonna eat all the tacos it's gonna be awesome yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks to my friend darian donovan thomas for joining me 
Really loved getting to talk with him. If you want to learn more about his music or hear what he's up to, head to darianthomas.myportfolio.com. And you can also follow him on any of the usual social media sites. Plans We Make was created by me, Ian Chang, and my son Lux bandmates, Ryan Lott and Rafiq Bhatia, and was produced and edited by Chris Jacobs. Special thanks to executive producers, Michael Kaufman and Hannah Hauser for all of their support. And be sure to subscribe to Plans We Make wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ian Chang. Thanks for listening.